Would you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter number 2? First Corinthians chapter two. At the end of the eighteen hundreds, a couple named Jonathan and Rosalind Goforth believed that God had directed them to go to China so they could preach the gospel there. And they wanted to go to the northwest part of China, which was at that point completely unreached with the gospel, and was actually violently opposed to Christ and Christianity. And many people thought they were foolish to go there. They thought they were throwing their lives away. They thought it would be a fruitless task. However, there were some that did encourage them, men like Uh, Hudson Taylor, who was a missionary to China, encouraged them to go. But he warned them that if you go, you must go on your knees in prayer. That's how dangerous it was. There was another person who was very well versed in Chinese culture, and he had some of his own ideas. He was a Christian man, and he thought he would give some advice to the go-forths. And so he sat down with them and he was talking to them about a strategy that he would take going to China. And he said this, he said, these Chinese in this area, they have a prejudice against the name of Jesus. So confine your efforts to demolishing the false gods and then after that bring in Jesus. And so his idea was to kind of slip in the gospel after you get there and, and kind of slip it in after you talk about other things and demolish their own false beliefs. His idea was to basically approach being a missionary to China like being a door-to-door salesman. You now you go to the door and try to make small talk and then eventually you slip in your vacuum cleaner or whatever that is. And the go force were aghast by this. In fact, Jonathan responded, he said, never Never, never, the gospel which saved the down and outer in the slums of the cities is the same gospel that must save the Chinese sinner. They went to that province, and they did actually face some very dangerous things, but they preached Christ. He preached Christ and him crucified, and the Lord used them to see many thousands, hundreds and thousands of Chinese people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so in the middle of his ministry, then he had someone come to him and say, he said, Mr. Goforth, what is the secret to your ministry? I mean, look what you've been able to do up here. What's the secret? And he said this, I simply believe and teach God's word. He said that some would come to him and say, well, that can't work for everyone. He said this, some replied, you can't preach to a proud Confucian scholar the same as you preach to the common Chinese crowd, can you? And he said, I answered this. He said, there is no royal road to God, rich or poor, Chinese, Canadian, educated or ignorant. All are sinners and all must come to the same Savior by the same road. As we think about our world, we think about 
just what's happening in the world, a lot of difficult things, a lot of suffering that's taking place, a lot of problems. You got Russia and Ukraine. You got the problems in modern America. We live in California and Los Angeles, the greater Los Angeles area. What is the answer for our world today? In other words, what does our world need? If you could say, this is, this is the thing that we should do in our world to help fix some of our problems, what would that be? What will it be that God will, will use to, to save souls, to, to transform lives, to give us hope for eternity? What do we need now more than anything else? And the answer from our text of scripture we're going to see today is that we need to preach Christ and him crucified. In the past number of weeks, we've been teaching through 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through 31. And, and we saw four reasons to preach Christ. We saw why to preach Christ. Why do we preach Christ? Because it displays God's power and his wisdom, his divine call to save and his glory. Today, we're actually going to look at verses 1 through 5, and we're going to see how we are to preach Christ. Really, this text of scripture right here is the pinnacle of this text speaking about preaching Christ. These five verses are, are the mountaintop of this passage on preaching Christ and him crucified. If chapter 1 is like climbing a mountain of truth, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, is like standing on its summit. If chapter 1 and 2 is a song, then, then chapter 1 is the orchestra gradually increasing its tempo and its volume, and verses 1 through 5 is the triumphant crescendo of God declaring how he communicates to us through preaching. And so we're going to look today at how... We are to preach Christ. If you're looking for a church and you're seeking to find what type of preaching that you should have, this is a very important text of scripture for you this morning. If you're studying for the ministry and you're wondering, how are you going to preach? This is a very important text of scripture. What type of preaching honors God? In, in verse 31 of the first chapter, we saw that there's a type of preaching that boasts in God and that which boasts in man. So what's the difference? How do you know the difference? And so the question is, how are we to preach Christ? And so I have a definition that I've come up with. I gleaned it from this text of scripture, and we're going to use this definition to work through this text of scripture. And the answer to this question of how comes directly from this passage. It's how God desires his revelation to be declared. It's how God, through his word, communicates to his church about himself. It's how God powerfully works in our midst. It's how God glorifies himself. And so what's that definition? What is preaching? How are we to preach? Well, preaching is God speaking his word about Christ's redemptive work through a spirit-empowered man so your faith will depend on him alone. And in this definition, we're going to see the, the source of preaching, 
We're going to see the message of preaching, the agent of preaching, and then last, the purpose of preaching. Would you look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, and would you stand with me as I read this? We read God's word together. I'll read it aloud. You can stand with me and listen and follow along in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter, one, chapter 2, verse 1. This is the word of God. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Father, I pray that you will take your word, plant it in our hearts, and may, Lord, it grow in us so that we trust you, we believe you, we follow you, we obey you, and we bring glory to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So what is preaching? Preaching is God speaking his word about Christ's redemptive work through a spirit-empowered man, so your faith will depend on him alone. So first we're going to notice the, the source of preaching. Preaching is God speaking his word. We find that in verse 1, where God is seen as the source of preaching. It's actually God here testifying of himself through preaching. Verse 1 says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, when I came to you recalls the time that Paul visited them and actually preached the gospel to them in Acts chapter 18. That was around the year 50 to 51 AD. And so Paul wants them to remember that time, recall his preaching to their minds, and then he presents himself as a model for preaching. And what he taught here was that his preaching was to be a pattern for that church and really for all true, faithful, gospel-preaching churches. This was the method that Jesus used. This was the method that Peter used. And this is the method that he wants our church to follow as well. And Paul wasn't being arrogant about his philosophy of preaching. It wasn't like he was saying, I have it right. What he was saying is, this is how God expects a church to declare his message. It's through his word and the faithful proclamation of his word. And I want to be clear because God does use his word in many contexts. We have Bible studies on Tuesday nights in people's homes at the church. God uses his word in that. You should be daily in God's word, listening to, reading God's word, and, and understanding what God has for you. We should have one-on-one -on -one discipleship. We have classes that we provide for the church that teaches God's word. But God's primary means to reveal himself to the church and to powerfully work in the hearts and minds of people is through the public declaration of himself. That's called preaching. That's what the word of God teaches. 
And his point in chapter 1 here is that the world thinks about preaching and they consider it foolishness. And because the world thinks what we're doing right now, what we do every week here is foolishness, therefore sometimes churches can feel embarrassed about preaching. And and so they say, well, we, we probably should utilize something else. Or maybe they believe Preaching's old-fashioned, so, so maybe we should replace it with something more modern. Or they think that the message or the approach is, is ineffective, so let's seek something that's more sophisticated. Maybe that's something that's more attractional, something that's more persuasive. That is true in our day. You see it across our world, our country, and churches. But it was actually true in, in Paul's day as well. Paul was only 45 miles away from Athens. Athens was the center for Greek philosophy. They they celebrated the philosophers of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, and you probably learned about them in history, and you should. You should learn your history. But they idolized those type of philosophers. They studied them. In fact, if you remember in Acts chapter 17, Paul actually went to Athens before he came to Corinth. And when he was in Athens, he was challenged by the intellectuals to present his message of Christ. So what did Paul do? He got up and he preached Christ. And the response he got was not positive. Some did believe, some did want to hear more, but the Bible says that they actually mocked him. Many mocked him and the overwhelming reception was rejection. They rejected him. We don't see a church planted in Athens. We don't don't have an epistle to the Athens, the Athenians, whatever you call them. And with that overwhelming response of rejection, do you think that Paul maybe wondered if he should change his philosophy of ministry? Right? I mean, he goes to Philippi, he preaches Christ, and he's beaten. He goes to other cities like Berea. He's run out of town. He goes to Athens. He's mocked. I mean, that is not usually what people expect as successful ministry. So you go into Corinth and you might think, well, maybe I should rework this thing. I mean, every town I'm going into, eventually it ends in me getting hurt and getting kicked out. But no, he goes into Corinth and he says, I'm going to do what I've done previously, because this this is what God has called me to do, and that is to preach Christ and him crucified. And so Paul recorded that the source of his preaching was the testimony of God. Look at verse 1. He says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So Paul contrasted his preaching with the methods of the world, and the the type of speaking that people would think would uh, be persuasive. And so in verse 1, you see that written in the negative, I did not, and he does that to contrast what he did not do with what he did do. So what did he do? Well, in verse 1, he came proclaiming. This word is commonly used in the New Testament to describe a person who is preaching. So Paul saw himself as a preacher who was to get up and to herald the truth, to authoritatively speak for God about God. And you can see that in verse 1. He preached, he proclaimed the testimony of God. 
the testimony of God. The word testimony is a legal term, a legal term that refers to a witness in a court of law who testifies. This is the person who, who takes the stand for himself and he testifies for himself. So, so then, therefore, what is preaching? Preaching is putting God on the stand and letting him speak for himself. We've seen, seen some of these um, TV court, um, t- some of these TV uh, uh, trials, and you've seen some of these people take the stand, right? And, and, they, and they testify what they saw happen. And that's what preaching is. It's, it's saying, here's what God says. Preaching is God's time for God to speak to you about himself. That's why it is so important for the preacher, for whoever's up here to make sure what he is declaring is true. It's accurate. He's faithful to what God actually says in his word. That's why in 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, Paul commands preachers to preach the word. Not your opinion, not your own ideas, not what you feel, not the the world's latest trend, not cultural issues. Preach God's word. That is to say, stand up and declare, this is time for God to speak about himself, so here is what he has to say to us. This is why This is why preaching is so serious. It's not a time for for me or any other man to get up here and proclaim his own life and promote himself or to entice you with his little chats. This is not a time for us to just get a nugget of truth. Sometimes people say that. I just want to go to church and get a a nugget of truth. You know, we're not a gold mine. Or or I just want to learn something new today. Or I want to get motivated to keep living life. No, that's not what church is about. That's not what preaching is about. Preaching is God's time to speak to you, to convict you, to change you, to renew your mind, to humble you, to to restore you, to encourage you in Christ. That's That's why preaching and listening to preaching is so important. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, you, speaking of the church, received the word which you heard from us, that's through preaching, and you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believes. In other words, God has a man preach his word, and that's how God works in his church. Do you want to see God work in your life? Do you want to see God work in your life? Listen to expositional preaching as if God himself is speaking to you. That's why we ask for reverence during this time. That's why we ask as much as possible to have cell phones turned down, for people not to walk around for us to pay attention. That's why we say, get your Bible out, get a notebook out, get a pen out, like take notes. This is time for God to speak to you. Preaching is God's time for God to speak to you about himself. And again, that's why we preach expositionally. 
which means we simply say, here's what the text says, and then let's consider how we can apply it. So again, look at verse 1. He says, I, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So the source of preaching is God's word, not my own wisdom. He didn't preach with lofty speech or wisdom. Lofty means high, means superior. This is the type of of speech that seeks to impress people or persuade based upon one's own extraordinary verbal skills or intellect, or they have this very attractive personality, and so everyone just loves to sit there and listen to this person. In Paul's day, orators would, would travel around from city to city, and they would put on display their intellect and their persuasive abilities. They quoted, they quoted philosophers. They, they told dramatic stories, alluded to literature, They employed humor. And the orator, the skilled orator, was a combination of a witty stand-up comedian, a dramatic storyteller, a Harvard intellectual, and a winsome talk show host. And think about the persuasion of a person like that going from city to city. And this is before TV and cell phones, right? So this is the attraction in town. And this guy can get up and he can argue one case He can sit down, and then he can come back up, and he can argue the opposite case and convince you either way. That's how skilled he is. And if a preacher is really going to be powerful, he needs to learn that type of skill. Let's remember Paul was well-educated. He had the equivalent, really, of a PhD. He spoke Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and possibly Latin. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. And Paul could stand toe-to-toe with any philosopher in his day. But Paul rejected that kind of man-centered approach to preaching because it, it depends on the wisdom of man and the power of man. It's so tempting for churches like ours and for pastors and for ministry leaders to drift away into this type of thinking. D.L. Moody was a powerful preacher over 100 years ago, and he was a simple gospel preacher. And someone criticized him once as being a little bit plain, a little bit boring, and he responded, I've been called to feed sheep, not giraffes. And I think that's a good response, that as pastors and whoever is up here proclaiming God's word, we're here to deliver the word of God to the common person, to the sheep. Well, not to put on a show. And so God is the source of preaching. It's his testimony. And then verse 2, God is also, or sorry, verse 2, we see that God is speaking his word about Christ's redemptive work. So the message of preaching preaching is about Christ's redemptive work. Look at verse 2. For I decided. For I decided. In other words, I made a firm decision. Paul here made a deliberate choice. This wasn't just because, oh, that was that's Paul's personality. Or, well, that's just Paul's style. Paul was saying, I had decided this is what I believe is true. This is God's will for his church 
I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, now what does that mean? What does that mean to, to preach in a way that every message you're preaching preaches Christ and him crucified? Well, first of all, what it does not mean does not mean that every sermon is about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It means that every sermon Paul preached declared that the only hope for humanity was found in Jesus Christ and his redemptive work. It means that every road led back to the cross. It means that every sermon, every text of scripture found its answer in Christ's redemptive work. The Old Testament looks forward to Christ's atonement. The, Old, the New Testament looks back to Christ's atonement. The whole of Scripture, and really you think about history, all of time actually looks back or looks to the cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul taught that what Christ did 2,000 years ago in his suffering and his death has a real effect upon each of us today. In fact, look at verse 2 and notice the word at the end, the word crucified. He says that I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The tense of this verb is very important. It's a, it's a perfect tense, which speaks, speaks about a, a point in time action that has continuing results. So Christ died at a point in time and then that has results that still affects us to this day. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say last year that someone came to you and presented a letter to you and you found out that you had a long lost relative that gave you $50 million, wrote you in his or her will and, and that person passed away and you go, oh wow, I got that money. So you took that $50 million, you, you put it in the bank account, and you could say this, that you gained an inheritance. In other words, there was a point in time when you got this inheritance, put it in your account, but that inheritance has a continued effect upon you today, doesn't it? You could go and you could pull that out. Now, some of you are like, $50 million, that's pretty good. I saw some of your eyes lighten up about that. But the word crucified points back to that point in time when Christ atoned on the cross for us and then also to the fact that there's continuing results, a continued effect upon those who believe the gospel. In other words, we can go every day at any moment and we can withdraw from the bank of God's grace because of Christ. So Paul's message was that Christ came and he died and his redemptive work is the only hope for humanity. In fact, look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. And you can see how God the Father applies the work of Christ to our life. Remember, God the Father divinely calls and when he does that, he applies the work of Christ to us that's at our conversion and he says in verse 30 and because of him that's God the father you are in Christ what does it mean to be in Christ who became to us wisdom from God and this is what it means that God the father gives us Christ's righteousness and sanctification and redemption and so first we see we saw this last week that he gives us righteousness 
That is that God the Father declares us righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now we recognize that that no one is righteous. That's That's what the scripture says. In Romans chapter three, there's none righteous, no, not one. In other words, there's no one in this world that is right with God. Everyone has, has sinned against God and has, has offended God, has broken his laws. And someone might say, well, you know, I, I, I obviously I'm not perfect, but I, I try to do my best. I try to clean my life up with doing good things and, and good deeds. Well, the prophet Isaiah said that all of us have become as one who is unclean. We're all ones who are unholy and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So even our righteous things, even the things we think are righteous that we're, we're trying to do that are righteous, that's like filthy rags. That's a powerful description right there, those filthy rags. Those filthy rags were descriptions of tissues of rags that were used to, to clean up bodily fluids. So you think about a, a, a trash can full of those type of smelly, stinky rags. And imagine that someone invited you over to their house. And you walk in the door, and they have their, their table there, and they have the food set out. And you're expecting to have a clean plate, and you're expecting to have nice food. And, and then they, they yell to one of their kids, hey, can you go to the bathroom? Can you go to the, the trash can? Can you pull out some of those little tissues in the trash can? And We need some napkins for the table. In fact, we haven't wiped the table down yet, so maybe you can wipe a table down with those things. And we would all go, ooh, gross. But here's the thing. That's how God views our righteousness. We're like, oh, I'll clean it up. I'll clean my life up, Lord. Here, let me take some of my righteousness. And he says, actually, that's like filthy rags. And that's why Christ came. Christ came as the righteous one, and only his righteousness can clean up our life. He lived a righteous life. And on that cross, the righteous one died in our place. 1 Peter 3:18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So on that cross, the Father treated the Son as the sinner, so that at your conversion, the Father could treat you, the sinner, as the Son. God's righteousness gives us the greatest gift of all. And that is that he brings us to God. In other words, he brings us into fellowship with him. We're reconciled to God. We have a relationship with him. That's because God the Father applies the righteousness of Christ to our life. And then also, what does he say? He says he also provides for us sanctification. That's God plucking a person out of the mire of his own sinfulness and setting that person apart unto himself as a child of God. And that happens when we're born again, when God calls us out at our conversion. And then also what happens in verse 30, because of Christ's work, he gives us redemption. That's God purchasing us with the blood of Jesus. The father took the most valuable thing ever. What is that? That is the life of the eternal son of God. And he used that sacrifice to purchase your life, to purchase your redemption. So the only message the church should preach that should have any effect upon 
the soul of a person is that of Christ and him crucified. The only way for you to be reconciled to God, the only way for you to be given, forgiven, the only way for you to be made holy, the only way for you to have eternal life is through Christ and his work on the cross. And so therefore, the conclusion of every sermon we have is that Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. So the work of Christ applied to us changes every part of our life. It changes our eternal destiny. But even even on earth, it changes our life. It affects us. Christ's work frees the enslaved addict. He renews our mind. He delights our soul. He imparts holy desires. He reconciles relationships. He humbles the proud. He strengthens the weak. He comforts the sorrowful. He empowers the servant. And that's all because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. In fact, it's interesting. If you go through the book of 1 Corinthians, what you'll find is in every chapter, Paul looks back to the work of Christ and he says, what Christ did on that cross should affect us today. In fact, just think through this with me. If you want to look through it, you can. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, he says that the Christ and his work is the foundation for the church. So as a church, what we do is we consider what Christ has done for us. That's the foundation for our church. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, we find out that we should consider the work of Christ when we think about restoring a believer or when we think about excommunicating a person who's unrepentant. Or about chapter 6, Christ's work should inform lawsuits. If you're considering taking a brother to court, consider the work of Christ. Or how about chapter 6, verse 20? Christ's work should affect our intimacy in marriage. You ever thought about that? It should affect you as in a single person. Chapter 7, it should affect how you consider uh, divorce and remarriage. It should affect the person who's a, a widow, a widower. In chapter 8, it should direct every decision we make, even the gray areas, even the areas you go, well, is that really, that's not in the Bible. No, nope. actually, Christ's work on the cross should inform those decisions. In, in chapter 9, it affects my habits, my cultural interactions. In chapter 10, it affects the unity of the church, and it should cause us to fear if we sin against other people as we consider the work of Christ. In chapter 12, it calls us to serve one another. In chapter 13, the work of Christ should motivate us to love one another. In chapter 14, the work of Christ should, should permeate every part of our worship. In chapter 15, the work of Christ should assure our hearts for the future. And I think the point is this, is that Jesus' work on the cross should be something that's considered in every part of our life and should affect every thought, every motive, every hope, every decision. His work on the cross must influence and control and motivate and direct our lives. And so the message of preaching is Christ and his redemptive work. And then Third, the agent of preaching, the agent of preaching. The agent of preaching is a spirit-empowered man. Look at verse 3. A spirit-empowered man. And I, 
was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Paul came to the church in Corinth physically weak and mentally beaten up. What do you think Paul looked like when he walked into Corinth on that first day? Well, you can see a glimpse of that if you look at 1 Corinthians 4. Look at, go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verse 11. He, he describes himself here. So I want you to imagine this description and imagine Paul coming into Corinth. In verse 11 of chapter 4, he says that he was hungry He was thirsty. He says, we're poorly dressed, buffeted, we're homeless. In verse 12, he labored, he was reviled, he was persecuted. Verse 13, he was slandered. In the end of verse 13, he says, we are treated like the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. Now that's pretty bad, wouldn't you say? And that's probably not how we picture Paul entering into a city like Corinth to preach the gospel. And again, that was not Paul's desire. It wasn't like his goal. He wasn't trying to be an an itinerant hobo. His condition was a result of traveling and preaching and church planting and persecution. But this was an accurate view of him and, and really of his weaknesses. In verse 3, he says he came in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. You can go back to Acts chapter 18. If you want to flip back there, you can. I'm going to be referencing it a couple of times. But if you go back to Acts chapter 18, just, just remember what Paul's preaching was like there. He walked into Corinth all alone. The Bible says he was greatly opposed. He went to the synagogue, he preached Christ to the Jews. They rose up and opposed him. Acts 18.6 says this, says, they opposed and reviled Paul. So this is personal. This is vicious. Frankly, this is dangerous. Now, how would you feel if, if you had some people in Simi who decided they were going to come against you? They were reviling you. They were posting things online about you. They were coming in front of your house and going to your neighbors and saying things that weren't true about you. They were threatening you. They were trumping up charges against you, and they were going to present it to the police. And it's going to look pretty true, and people are going to come against you. How would you feel? That was the reality for Paul. And that's why I think you see in verse 3, he says he had fear and much trembling. I think this is a good reminder that Paul is, was much like you and me. He had fear and trembling. I think that's why Christ spoke to Paul. He met with Paul in the night and spoke to him in Acts 18.9. He said this, Do not be afraid. Go on speaking, do not be silent, for I am 
with you. And he was telling Paul, listen, Paul, I know you're afraid, right? He saw Paul's heart. He knew the fear in Paul's heart. And he said, I am with you. Keep preaching Christ and him crucified. And from the world's perspective, Paul's earthly life was not attractive. It was not something that most would aspire to. He got kicked out of cities. Philosophers mocked him. He was weak. He owned nothing. He was afraid. Now, when was the last time that you heard of a pastor presenting his resume with that description right there? You know, I've been kicked out of these cities, <laughs> and these people are against me. I have all these posts on social media about me, and I'm actually not even a really great communicator, and I'm, I'm really afraid sometimes. Can I be your pastor? <laughs> In fact, look at verse 4. You can see it was his his speech was weak. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. The words speech and message are really synonyms to speak of as preaching. And then you see a play on words in verse 4. The word speech and the word words in verse 4 are from the same Greek word, logos. And so he's saying my speech, my logos, and my message were not in persuasive logos, persuasive words of wisdom. And his point is that it was that he didn't rely on his own persuasive skills. It's not that he didn't seek to persuade them. In fact, if you're in Acts 18, look at verse 4. Acts 18.4 says he actually did try to persuade them. He says that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. But then if you look at verse 5, it tells you how he did it. He was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. In other words, it wasn't that he didn't try to persuade. It was that he did not try to persuade apart from God's word. Paul sought to persuade them from the scriptures not based upon human reasoning or his own reasoning or this book says that and that philosopher says that. Here's the benefits if you do this and that. He says, this is what God says and I want to convince you of what God says. And so he did persuade them based upon the scriptures. And Paul said his approach was not to try to persuade based upon man's reasoning, human logic, human philosophies. And again, it wasn't because Paul couldn't do that. Paul was a very, very intelligent person. He had intellect. He knew what people wanted. Frankly, he had some power. He could go to a church if he wanted to and say, give me money. He, he could have come riding into Corinth on his, on his Mustang, right? But he didn't do that. And why didn't he do that? Why would, why would God allow Paul to be weak? Why would Paul not adopt the world's ways? Well, the answer is found in verse 4, the end of verse 4. He says, my speech and my message were not in plausible, not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So here's the answer. God used Paul's weakness to display the Holy Spirit's power. The seemingly work, 
uh, the seemingly weak words of Paul, the weak message of Paul, the weak presence of Paul actually was what God used to display the powerful words of God, the powerful message of God, the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God used weak Paul empowered by the Spirit to powerfully work in hearts. And he did so to prove that the work being done was not the work of the Apostle Paul. It was the work of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, it's so important as we minister, whether we be up here preaching the word or wherever we're ministering, that the minister doesn't rely upon his own persuasive skills, but upon the Holy Spirit in his work. The preacher that God uses is not always the most persuasive, not necessarily the one that's skilled in debate, not primarily the bigger-than-life personality. And yes, God can use those people, but those, those are not the first ones off the bench. God uses the one that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. He uses the one that's dependent upon his Holy Spirit. He uses the one who trusts in the Holy Spirit to work. He uses the one who opens up the divine Holy Spirit, breathe word of God, and he trusts God's word and God's spirit to work. So the agent of preaching is a spirit-empowered man read an article this past week in the PCUSA magazine titled The Preacher's Power to Persuade. And this preacher here gives some advice to pastors. And really, it's not good advice. And he wrote this. I quote, The more effective a sermon's rhetoric, the more likely your listeners will be open to a new perspective. So the more effective a sermon's rhetoric the more likely your listeners will be open to a new perspective. So what's the basis for effectual work in preaching for him? Well, it's, it's on the techniques of your rhetoric. And he goes on to talk about that. He says, well, let me explain this to you. So quote, he says, as Aristotle taught. Yep, there we go. Speakers have three rhetorical devices. The logos, persuasion that occurs through arguments. The pathos or persuasion that causes hearers to feel emotions in the ethos. So his advice is to look to philosophers to seek to persuade with wisdom, the wisdom of their logos. Does that sound familiar to you? Like maybe somewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, God actually says not to do that? Like literally what God says not to do is his advice to do. And the conclusion of the article is this, then. He, and then I'm quoting now, encouraged white preachers to draw on people of color, young people in the LGBTQ community, to lift them up as a, full, as, as a fully human part in the body of Christ from whom we can all be inspired. So, so that application right there comes from the deceptive fruit of preaching that is based upon a man-centered message and a man-centered 
method. I mean, how do you come to that conclusion? It's because your, your preaching is not based upon the word of God. It's based upon the word of man. And did you hear what his goal was? This was his goal. To lift them up as a fully human part of the body of Christ. Why? So we can be inspired. So what, what's Christ's work for us? It's to inspire us. It's to lift us up. What's our response? We're to, we're to be lifted up. But actually, what is the word of God says? Like that type of preaching empties the cross of its power. Because what is the what does actually the gospel say? What does Christ work for us? Christ redeems us. Christ has atoned for us. Christ reconciles us to God. And our response, therefore, must be humility and repentance and confession of sin and faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So Christ's work isn't to, to lift us up, to help us feel better about ourselves. Christ's work actually causes us to go low and to bow our knee so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue would confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's the conclusion right there of biblical preaching. And then last, what is, what is the purpose of preaching? What is the purpose of preaching? Preaching is... God speaking his word about Christ's redemptive work through a spirit-empowered man, so your faith will depend on him alone. And so herein is the purpose of preaching, your faith will depend on him alone. Look at verse 5. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In verse 5, we find a purpose clause. This is the purpose of preaching. It's so that your faith will rest in the power of God. If preaching is persuasive and effective because of a preacher's great oratory skills, because, in his, because he has a dynamic personality, he has ingenious rhetoric, he's very attractive in his eloquence, he has a mighty presence, then in whom will the congregation put their faith in that preacher. And who deserves the glory? That's right. Jesus deserves the glory. But if you preach based upon your own might, your own wisdom, then you are preaching glory for yourself. But listen to this. If God uses a foolish message, a foolish message of a seemingly weak Savior who dies... If God has divinely called you to salvation, you, a foolish person who is too weak to earn God's favor, if God employs a foolish messenger who is weak in his own human wisdom and power, then who receives the glory? It's God and God alone. I think it's important to point out this is no excuse for any minister of God's word to be lazy it's not an excuse to be a slob. It's not a call for us to go be homeless. Now, this is a call for us to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit upon us. To, to study the word of God, to study really the God, 
breathe, the Holy Spirit breathe word of God night and day to diligently labor, to diligently labor by the strength of, this, of his spirit and to trust God to work by the power of his spirit. God loves, God loves to raise up rejects and use them in an amazing way. He's, he raised up Moses, the one who was rejected by his people and the people of Egypt to lead God's people to freedom. God delights in raising up the most unlikely runt in the family to kill Goliath and to be the king of Israel, King David. God is pleased to raise up backward fishermen to confront uppity Sanhedrin and turn the world upside down. God enjoys using weak servants like Paul to plant churches all over Asia Minor. And you may say, Pastor Ben, I'm weak. Do you know what? That's the kind of person God uses. He gave us those weaknesses. He gives us those weaknesses so he can empower us and powerfully use us. So the question here this morning is, will we receive? Will we receive God's testimony about himself, about Christ's redemptive work, and faith and obedience? You might be a person in here today, and you've heard a lot about Christ, about our sin, and your need for Christ. And the purpose of preaching is so you will respond in faith. So you will stop trusting yourself, your own ideas, your own religion, and you will turn in faith and repentance, repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so if you're in here without Christ, Christ, plead to you. My, my request of you is for you to turn to Christ. But maybe, Christian, you're in here, and as we consider the preaching of God's word today, you need to ask Christ to work in your heart. Maybe you need to ask him some things like this. Father, help me to listen to your word. Help me to apply the work of Christ in all areas of my life. Use my weakness to display your power. Help me to depend upon your Holy Spirit. Lord, increase my faith. Let's pray. As we go to the Lord in prayer, let me encourage you to speak to the Lord. Christian, call out to him.